Church Podcast. On June 2nd, 1925, Lou Gehrig replaced Wally Pipp in the New York Yankees starting lineup and didn't come out for the next 14 years. Pip played 10 great years for the Yankees, but after legend says he asked out of a game with a headache, he became the symbol for the insecurities of professional athletes ever since. Teaching team member David McNeely continues the series, I Life, with this message entitled, Insecurity, which covers Psalm 91. Thank you for joining us today. Sin was strong. Can I replace one word? Sin is strong. But Jesus is stronger. Shame is great. But Jesus is greater. A couple of months ago, this song began to grip my heart because of something that was stirring. I'll I'll tell you about it later on. But this summer, um, one of the most difficult summers of my life, just in terms of personally and um, the lyrics to this, um, I have ministered to my very soul. I was about six months into alcohol rehab as a senior in high school, and I was not walking with the Lord at all. I know to some that may sound a little weird, walking with the Lord, God who's in heaven and walking, and he's actually not here physically, but, but if you've experienced it, you know what I mean by that statement. In a very real sense, there's a journey that you take, just like I would take a walk with my wife in a neighborhood. There's oftentimes a just sense that I'm walking with the Lord. And during those seasons, it's, it's really sweet. Now, I was not walking with the Lord at this time in my life, though. I knew he was here. I was here. How the two of us got together, I knew was Jesus, but I had no desire to actually make that happen. But I'm trying the best I can to get sober out of respect for my parents. And um, this was one that I just simply could not charm my way out of. It was too great. And the gentleman who was my sponsor in AA, who was way, way old at that point, I was 17 years old and he was 25 years old, (laughs) he gave to me a poem that I latched on to, and my father went to 88 AA meetings with me in 90 days. The only two he missed were because he had weddings to do. And so when he read this to me the first time, I wept because I thought of my earthly father. As the years have gone on, the same words have come back to my mind many, many times. And I now still think of my earthly father, but I think more primarily of my heavenly father. It's a poem entitled The Race. It goes like this. Quit. Give up. You're beaten. They shout out and plead. There's just too much against you now. This time you can't succeed. And as I start to hang my head in front of failure's face, my downward fall is broken by the memory of a race. A children's race, young boys, young men, how I remember well. Excitement, sure, but also fear, it wasn't hard to tell. They all lined up so full of hope, each thought to win that race, or tie for first, or if not that, at least take second place. The whistle blew, and off they flew like chariots of fire. To win, to be the hero there, was each young boy's desire. One boy in particular, whose dad was in the crowd, was running in the lead and thought, my dad will be so proud. But as he speeded down the field and crossed a shallow dip, the little boy who thought he'd win lost his step and slipped. Trying hard to catch himself, his arms flew every place, 
And midst the laughter of the crowd, he fell flat on his face. As he fell, his hope fell too. He couldn't win it now. Humiliated, he just wished to disappear somehow. But as he fell, his dad stood up and showed his anxious face, which to the boy so clearly said, get up and win the race. He quickly rose, no damage done, behind a bit, that's all, and ran with all his mind and might to make up for his fall. So anxious to restore himself, to catch up and to win, his mind went faster than his legs and he slipped and fell again. He wished that he had quit before with only one disgrace. I'm hopeless as a runner now. I shouldn't try to race. But through the laughing crowd, he searched and found his father's face with a steady look that said again, get up and win the race. So he jumped up to try again, 10 yards behind the last. If I'm going to gain those yards, I've got to run real fast. Exceeding everything he had, he gained eight or 10, but trying hard to catch the lead, he slipped and fell again. Defeat. He lay there silently, a tear dropped from his eye. There's no sense running anymore. Three strikes, why I'm out, why try? I've lost, so what's the use, he thought. I'll live with my disgrace. But then he thought about his dad, who soon he'd have to face. Get up. An echo sounded low. You haven't lost it all, for all you have to do to win is rise each time you fall. Get up, the echo urged him on. Get up and take your place. You were not meant for failure here. Get up and win the race. So up he rose once more, refusing to forfeit, and he resolved that win or lose, at least he wouldn't quit. So far behind the others now, the most he'd ever been, still he gave it all he had and ran like he could win. Three times he'd fallen stumbling. Three times he rose again. Too far behind to hope to win, he still ran to the end. They cheered on another boy who crossed the line first place, head high, proud, happy, no falling, no disgrace. But when the fallen youngster crossed the line last place, the crowd gave him the greater cheer for finishing the race. And even though he came in last with head bowed low, unproud, you would have thought he'd won the race to listen to the crowd. And to his dad, he sadly said, I didn't do so well. To me, you won, his father said. You rose each time you fell. Now when things seem dark and bleak and difficult to face, the memory of that little boy helps me in my own race. For all of life is like that race with ups and downs and all, and all you have to do to win is rise each time you fall. And when depression and despair shout loudly in my face, another voice echoes low, get up. And win the race. Last week we talked about what it's like to be isolated and to be lonely. And we said there's a couple of things that we could try. We could look outward and that won't be particularly helpful. Asking others to take away our loneliness so that we're no longer isolated doesn't work. It places unrealistic demands upon them that they can't fulfill. We said we could look inward, but that doesn't do any good anyway. We tend to become even more depressed, more isolated in that process because the further I go deeper in, the worse I see I really am. The third option we said is to look up. And we step into the presence of God and we do that primarily through the listening of his word as we put the word of God in front of our eyes so that we can hear with clarity what he has to say. And then we speak to him in prayer. We carry on a simple conversation, a relationship with him. All relationships are built on conversation. He talks and we listen and we talk and he listens. And in this manner, our loneliness, our isolation is taken away. Once we're in this place right here, then we can appropriately look out to others 
and have them fulfill the roles that God has called them to fulfill. If you left last week thinking, I got it. I got it and never again will I battle with loneliness and being isolated. You're wrong. What's going to happen is we're going to talk about insecurity here in a minute, but you're going to find that we're going to leave and we're going to stumble and we're going to fall and we're going to get up and we're going to stumble and we're going to fall. And each time our father is going to say, get up and walk with me again. Now, insecurity is something that on the front end seems a bit obvious to us. We know when we see it in others, and it's not a pretty sight. We know it when it takes place in our lives, and it's even uglier to us when we see it in the mirror. But there's two really levels of insecurity I want to talk about. On the one level is the insecurity. I'm going to call it the surface level. I am not in any way undermining it or demeaning it or saying it's not valuable or difficult. It is in many ways still debilitating, but it's on a surface level, meaning that it's more about the externals. It could be things that we're we're insecure about our ears. We're insecure about our hair. We're insecure about our personality. We're insecure about things that may be more on the external, some of which we may have control over, some of which we may not have any control over whatsoever. And there's a level of insecurity there that for many of us, it really is debilitating and difficult. It is at times just hard to move forward in any way. But that's not really the insecurity that I want to sit on. I want to sit on insecurity that I think is at a deeper level. In fact, this right here actually causes this to be to seem like a big deal. In other words, it exacerbates the problem up here. See, I'm a relatively confident guy. Throughout my lifetime, I just have not struggled on the externals a whole lot with insecurity. I'm neither particularly good looking or particularly ugly. I'm not particularly funny. I'm not particularly serious. I'm somewhere in the middle on all things. I I love to poke fun of myself and talk about being educated in Alabama. I mean, the self-deprecating humor is a part of what I do. But the truth is, I know that I'm really kind of of average intelligence. I'm neither up here nor am I down here. I'm just just one average dude. And as a result of that, I don't think I've ever really struggled externally with a whole lot of insecurity. But there's another level right here that I do struggle with. The level down here of insecurity is not things like, it's, it's things like the places where we construct our lives to live on. It's how we approach life. If we approach life placing our stability and security in things which are not going to last, which can change, which can be taken away, then we will forever struggle with a deep-seated insecurity and instability. Or we can place our hope and trust in that which moth and rust cannot break in and steal. That which will not rust. We can place our hope in that which will never be taken away. And then we can walk on secure ground. I was in the Keys several years ago in the mid-90s. And our boss, Matt Brinkley, had taken our entire staff down to the Keys. It was a rough, rough vacation we had to endure. And while we were there, I noticed there was this little jetty out there, and there's a series of rocks that were building out, and I thought, man, that looks pretty good to walk out on. I can get out there, think, pray, just relax, and 
recoup. And so I began to make my way out there, and I thought, okay, there's a lot of rocks, and now there's moss, and there's algae, and there's stuff. But that's all right, because I am a pristine athlete in maximum condition. I will be able to navigate it with no problem whatsoever. And as I was going across, I was kind of doing this thing, and I thought it would be really fun to have somebody film this right now. I'm walking on the rocks, and then I hit one particular spot. This leg right here slipped out. I came down, put my hand on the rock, boom, my, my shoulder popped out of joint, my arm is sticking up. Praise God, there's an individual who is there who is walking past. He runs over to me, and I've got it. He knows what's going on. He also played football, played football, said, I think we can get this thing back in. And so we pop it, and it goes back in. And I heard this massive pop. Now, being a dude, I chose not to go to the doctor because I said, well, it's in. And to this day, it hurts. Now, it hurts when I try to do things like push-ups, and so I really can't exercise now, which I know right now you're thinking, you're thinking that's impossible. You the incredible physique that you possess. There's no way you don't work out constantly. Come on. It is difficult to, to do that. The point is this. When we walk through life in areas that are unstable, that are not designed to give us hope and stability, it is just a matter of time before we fall. And it's just a matter of time before we bring damage to us and to everyone around us. A couple in North Carolina. This guy has it all externally. He's tall. He's good looking. Played basketball. He, everything externally you would want. Charming personality he has. One of the most insecure people I've ever been around in my life. And then within months of their marriage, they're in our home. And Judith and I are talking to them. And she is worn out, exhausted from having to feed his confidence every day. You know what it's like. You know what it's like to demand that others bring that to you. You know what it's like to have to fill in for others. And it is just a matter of time before serious damage is done. Just to give you a little bit more of a formal definition here. Insecurity is uncertainty or anxiety about oneself. It's a lack of confidence. That's on the surface level. Deeper, it's the state of being open to danger or threat. It is a lack of protection. The word insecure, I like this also. It's just a tad bit different, but insecure, not confident or assured, uh, uncertain or anxious. That's on the surface level, but deeper is not firm or set. It is unsafe. One person said this, unknown author. I think they nailed it. Confidence is silent. Insecurities are loud. We know it when we see it. We know it when we feel it. In some ways, we feel powerless to change it. Now today, you may be saying, I know that I am a confident and secure, stable person, so this message is one that I can sleep. If that's you then I would say two things. First, you're deceiving yourself. And secondly, even if you are that secure, trust me, the time is coming in which you are going to enter into a period of life that is insecure, unstable, unsafe. So what do we do about truth number one? At various times in our lives, we all will stumble on the path called insecurity. We all are going to do it. 
We all are going to place hope in something that was not designed for us to place hope in. We all are going to try to walk on a path that is unstable and uncertain, thinking that if we just got a little bit better at balancing, we could navigate it. Why do we become insecure typically? Typically speaking, there are two primary, and I would say not exclusive, but they are two primary destructive forces that feed into helping us to become insecure or creating an environment of insecurity. Number one is fear. We fear that which is in front of us, which we don't know. In other words, it's the fear of the unknown that oftentimes debilitates us. What is it that's coming next? If I just knew what it was that was coming next, then I would feel so much better. You may have a medical condition that has not been diagnosed. You know something's going on, but you don't know exactly what it is. If you just knew what it was in your mind, you'd say, I know I could deal with it. If I just knew that this was coming, then I could. we fear the unknown. We also fear change. An environment that we have where we want to be stable and secure. We know what we can do and what we can't do. We know where we are gifted and where we aren't gifted. And when that changes, when things are different, it creates this instability and insecurity in us. In our spiritual pilgrimage, I think what we fear the most is what if it's not true? What if God's grace really isn't as good as people say it is. Am I going to get to the place where I sin this last time and God says, that's it. I'm done forgiving you. We know it's not true, but our hearts oftentimes tell us something different. We don't feel like coming back to the Lord again for the 400th time with the same issue. We fear that his love won't last. You cannot outsend the cross. Fear is a fire that consumes everything in its path. It is destructive and it does not care about who it consumes. And it oftentimes grips us and debilitates us. There is fuel that gets poured onto that fire, though, that we have. So whereas fear is, is the fire, misplaced hope is the fuel that gets poured on that fire. Meaning this, we place hope in things which God never intended us to place hope in. Do you today place hope for your security in your spouse? Let me tell you what that would look like. Perhaps you're trying to do everything within your power so that your spouse will love and embrace and accept you? Are you today placing hope in your job? That if I have this job, I continue moving forward with this job, then I'll have stability and security moving forward. Are you placing hope spiritually in your performance for God? See, misplaced hope, I think, is the fuel, but it leads us into how it is that we typically deal with it. And I think that we deal with our insecurity in one of three ways. It's the same three ways we talked about last week. We deal, first of all, in a way that we look outward. We ask that circumstances or that people will bring stability and security to us. We believe that somehow if we have enough green bills in that bank account, then we will be secure. Or we think, like some of us do, 
If I, I don't have near enough. If I had more, then I would finally be at rest and security. You placing your hope in someone else? Placing your hope, are you beating your brains in to make yourself what you think that they want? We can look outward. The other thing we can do is to look inward. And we can try to maximize what it is that we do well. We can try to minimize what it is that we don't do well and make ourselves indispensable to others. You trying to make yourself indispensable at work? Trying to make yourself indispensable in your peer group? Are you the funny guy? And if you're not funny, then where would you fit? We can look outward. And it will provide us with no help because people and circumstances change. They are not stable. They, they, they will not remain. As much as I hate to admit it, we know that everyone has an expiration date. And my hope is placed in them. There's coming a time in which they will no longer be here. We can look inward, but I promise you this, the further I look in, the worse off I'm going to be. I'm going to find that I am not a stable and secure person. What we have to do instead is to look up. We have to look up to the only one who is stable, the only one who is secure, the only one who is everlasting, the only one who will never change. We have to look up towards him, draw into his presence, get on his ground, which does not do this right here. It's a level path that moves us forward. The psalmist says this in Psalm 91. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. We don't know who the psalmist is that wrote this. It could be Moses. It could be David. Theologians talk about who it is. It's in some ways a pointless argument. What I do like is this. The messenger is not remembered, but the message is loud and clear. The first two verses are going to tell us this. I will, and you can make a little lowercase I on that because it's the psalmist writing. Verses 3 through 13 are going to tell us he will, where the psalmist is telling us what God will do. But verses 14 through 16, go back and make it a capital I, I will. It is God saying what he will do. First two verses are crucial. He who dwells in the shadow of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. The picture is of a mama bird who has spread her wings where her chicks can come under. It is the shelter that is provided for the storm that is out there. They gather up underneath her and she provides protection. He says, he who dwells in this place, not he who just simply visits from time to time. He who makes a living down here, who makes an abode, who makes a home, who stays. I'm not saying that they never ever leave because we all will leave. But that when we leave, we are filled with this deep-seated miss. I just miss God. I miss being with Jesus. I miss the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I have to get back into the shelter of the Most High so that I can rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Look how personal God is to him. It's not a theory. It's not an idea. It's not a philosophy. It's not a vain hope that it might be true. 
This is my God because I have experienced him. I've had those moments where I have rested, I've stayed. And oh, what does he do when we're there? For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the most high, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. When we come into this place, the psalmist is speaking directly to us in these verses. When you choose to do that, to dwell here, here's what the Lord is going to do. He is going to protect. He then says that no evil is going to befall upon you. Now, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that nothing bad will ever happen. He is giving us the promise and the assurance that when something bad happens, the Lord is with us. He is not saving us from harm. He is walking with us in harm. Now, let me ask you this. Is there any other ground that is safer? Is there any other environment that is this stable? Is there any other person or program or system or thought or philosophy that can actually provide this for you? You remember that this was the quote that uh, that, uh, Jesus got from the devil when he was being tempted in the garden. But the devil left out one little line. He left out the line that said to guard you in all your ways, second half of verse 11. He'll command his angels concerning him. The devil's trying to get, just jump down, just get down. Man, he'll save you. But it's to guard you in all your ways. The condition is this. When our ways are walking in the pathway of God. When I step out of that. Verse 14. God begins speaking, capital I, because he holds fast to me in love. I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. And when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. God says, try me, test me, draw near to here and see if I don't provide that for you. Not because you're good, not because you don't sin, not because you always get it right, but because you know me and I know you. Step in right here. I will. Nobody can provide that. Now, God is the one who is making this promise. So what is the scriptures have to say about who this God is? What if God changes? What if he turns into something that we, we don't like? What, what, if, what if God becomes something that we don't want him to be, according to the scriptures? 
fat chance. Psalm 102, 25 through 27. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will always wear, they will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. Malachi 3, 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear just in case we didn't catch it. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. The same God who in Psalm 91 said, come in, dwell under my shelter and you will rest in my shadow. The same God there says that to you. But what if I sin? What if I sin in such a manner that I get out of his arms? John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. We rest right here. This is stable. This is secure. Romans 8, Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's what he is saying. My friends, there is nothing you can do to outsend the cross. Regardless of what you do, regardless of what you do, regardless of what you do, nothing can separate you from Jesus. Is there any ground that is as stable as that? When I place hope in anything other than the rock, I will deal with fear, anxiety, depression, etc., whatever you want to put in there. Let me close our time by giving you the second truth. Two points of application, I'll close with just an illustration. Truth number two, Jesus is secure and is the only source of genuine security. He himself is secure and he's the only source that offers genuine and real security. He secures all who rest in his shadow. Two points of application. What I'd love for you to do is to, to, when the evil one comes in and he wants to tell you things about who you are, about who you are not, about who God is, about who he is not, I want you to dismiss those lies. That is easier said than done. But send them back where they came from in the words of Steve Brown, which is from the pit of hell and smells like smoke. Again, easier said than done. But the second thing is, would you repent of misplaced hope? 
placing hope in people or circumstances or whatever it may be. In the middle of May, I began uh, to struggle, and and I can't tell you exactly what it was, but May of this year, something in my gut was wrong, and I just knew um, something was up, but I, I couldn't discern it. And what I was really excited about was this series that was coming up here at Perimeter called the Young Leaders Series. And these young leaders are men that I know and love, um, all of them. Um, I didn't know one uh, in there, but, but the other ones I did know and have even helped prepare them for Gold Rush, have talked with them about ministry, have counseled, etc. The, these are dear friends of mine. So when I tell you that I, I love these guys, this is not just preacher speak. This is real. And I love these guys. And the first one out of the gates is a guy named Andy Nelson, longtime friends with the Nelson family. And he gets up here on stage, and I'm up there in that balcony right over here, you know, on the side, making sure that I can get out real quick. I had something else I had to do for both hours, but I thought I got to hear this message. And so I'm up there like a proud, it's not an uncle, and yet it's not a brother. I don't, I'm a bruncle. I don't know what I am in there, but I'm something, and, and I'm listening to him, and I'm just, it's my boy. Andy, where'd he go, man? Give it, yeah. And about 10 minutes in, I had the thought, man, they, they, we're similar. Our styles of communication are similar, which means this is a younger, better version of me. <laughs> and the evil one came and he, he threw a jab. Boom! And I went, I wonder if Randy is bringing him in to push me out. (laughs) And he started pounding on me while I was up there. I survived, I got past it, but that week I just began dwelling on, I wonder wonder if Perimeter's trying to get rid of me. Hayes Cargo got to speak the next week. Another dear brother that's been in my house and as a student, and I, I mean, love him. And he got up and preached a sermon, and there was never a moment during the sermon when I went, that's a younger, better version of me. He was doing something that I can't do as a communicator. The way that he was communicating was, if I were to try to walk you through it, just be confusing. He took this passage, and it was awesome. I'm sitting right over here. And the only thing I can think of is there's no way I can do that. And now Randy has options. (laughs) And I lean over to my wife and I said, Judith, that may have been the best sermon I've ever heard somebody his age preach. And the evil one went, boom, and he tagged me again. I was stumbling again because now I'm thinking, Hayes is going to come in and he's going to do my job. And Andy and Hayes made together come in. I, I bet Randy was really impressed with him. And Randy got up on stage and appropriately. He didn't elevate him. He didn't idolize him. Randy appropriately said, boy, I hope you understand just how well we were fed right there. And I'm agreeing with him in my heart. I, yeah, amen. All the while I'm thinking, Randy doesn't want to make eye contact. And I walk out of this service, and, and, and here's the thing that's so crazy. Randy has never done anything other than encourage me. Never. 
He has rebuked me when necessary, appropriately, in a loving fashion. He has, outside of my father and Matt Brink, I don't think there is a person on the planet I respect more than that man. Now, all that week was going on, the, the devil then started just winding up, and he began taking some shots at some past sin that was going on in my life. And I'm, I'm stumbling like a boxer that's just trying to make it up until finally he just starts pounding while I'm down on the ground. It turned into an MMA fight at that point. I'm, I'm just getting hammered, and I'm here, and he just keeps blowing and blowing to the head, and it turned away from just this job, and it actually went, you think you love your wife? You don't love her. Why do you think that she's battled with darkness over all these years? It's because you have never provided her the environment that she needs. You've never made enough money. You've never given her enough love. You've never spoken her language. You're not creative. You're not good. If you were man enough, then she would be okay. The best thing for her is to go away and to marry a real man who can hang on to these boys. Oh, and by the way, speaking of the boys, you've never loved the boys. Why do you think they struggled in school? Why do you think it is that they can't figure things out? These boys know that you're lying to them. They know you're a phony. They know you're a fraud. They know you get up on stage and say something, but they experience it at home. And as soon as they leave your house, they are forever walking away from God. They have no respect for you. And your brothers, when was the last time that you actually called your brothers just to check in and talk with them? They are experiencing far more difficult circumstances in life than you are and your parents. Sure, you call your parents every Thursday night, but what's the conversation it's about? It's always about you. It's always about your family. You're the same 12-year-old punk that loved the stage then and you are now. And then it went on and on. It was blow after blow after blow. And the only thing that finally just heard, by the way, the reason that Perimeter is even hanging on to you is because they love your family and they feel sorry for them. They know that if they cut you loose, your family could never get what it is that they need. You are only a storyteller and storytellers don't cut it in real life. You are a worthless piece of dung. My response was, I know. And I told my wife, And she prayed. And she encouraged me to talk to a particular elder here. And so I went to talk to that elder and he listened to me. He said, David, I'm so sorry for what you're going through. And he didn't rescue me. What he said was, David, what if it's true? What if you don't have what it takes to be a father? What if you don't have what it takes to be a husband? What if you don't have what it takes to be a pastor at Perimeter? What if everybody leaves you? What does it say about Jesus? What does it say about the gospel? What does it say about God's purposes? And he took my chin. And I had to look up. And he is barking away. And he is swinging and he is landing blows. And I heard the voice. The voice that I've heard many times before, the voice of the shepherd who came in, he just whispered, get up. Lift your eyes to the hills from where your help will come from. I am your shield and your very great reward. 
I am the treasure hidden in the field. I am the pearl of great price. I am the one who died for you so that your sins may be far and separate as far as the east is from the west. I am the one who knew no sin, who became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. I am the one who holds you in my righteous right hand. I am the one who will not let go. It is my work. Focus on me. And he offered me a hand. And I got up. And I came into the shelter of the Most High. And those blows could not be landed anymore. Oh, sure, he was barking. But I was hearing the truth in a whisper that far outvolumed the shout. And I had to preach a sermon in North Carolina on the prophet Elisha. And I'll spare you the details, but the prophet Elisha never, ever, ever escaped the shadow of the prophet Elijah. And in my heart, I thought, I will never escape the shadow of Matt Brinkley, and I will never escape the shadow of Randy Pope. And the shepherd whispered, probably not. But I don't care about their shadow. I want to know, do you want to rest in the shadow of the Almighty? And so I had to repent. See, my misplaced hope and the reason I freaked out was because when I first heard it in that balcony right there was there's a chance that I will no longer be associated with perimeter. And somewhere along the line, I believe that it was not the God of perimeter that was providing for us. It was the people of perimeter. I placed my hope in you. You have been so good. So gracious, so kind, so merciful. We have benefited so greatly that I misunderstood. I thought you were the great ones. But you're just the ones who are being used by him. And if he provides for us here, using, he'll provide for us anywhere. My hope is, is that I never go. It really is our desire. We love this church. We love this place. We But where I am today, after 10 weeks of barking and beating, finally there in August, I began to listen to him. After that, I really am at a place right now where I can say with sincerity, if he calls us somewhere else, we're going to be okay. Because my hope is not in you. My hope is here. Look out. You'll be distressed. Look in. You'll be depressed. But look up. And you'll be at rest. Almighty God, to you goes all the glory and the honor and the praise. Lord, I thank you that when our sin is great, you are greater. When our sin is strong, you are strong. When our shame is great, you are greater. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that there is nothing that we can do to remove ourselves permanently from you. We can't take credit for that. So Lord, thank you for once again bringing your word and speaking to us 
you are good, and you are secure. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.